be um, flipping around a little bit looking at some other passages. And, and, uh, but what I want us to consider this evening is the contrast of kingdoms in the Holy Week. Um, this is what is oftentimes referred to as Holy Week. It begins with uh, Palm Sunday and uh, Christ entering into Jerusalem triumphantly. And then, of course, culminates uh, in the next week, the next Sunday, when Christ raises from the tomb. And throughout that week, there's sort of a building, um, uh, sort of a building drama or a, a rising tension that happens throughout the gospel writers and the things that they're pointing to. And particularly in Matthew, we find a focus on how Christ is, is coming and saying, look, there are two kingdoms. Which kingdom are you going to align yourself with? And we see this illustrated through um, a number of different things throughout that Holy Week and throughout the things that he says, he does. Um, and then we also see it contrasted, uh, particularly among two of his disciples. So it's important for us to recognize the importance of the kingdom concept in Christ's ministry. Um, when Jesus began his ministry, he began by seeking to bring, about, bring people into the kingdom. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, this is after Christ has been tempted. This is after that has, the angels have ministered to him. He now goes out and he begins his ministry and he begins preaching. And of course, we know the first word of the gospel is repent, calling people to turn from particularly following the kingdom of this world and seek to align themselves with the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. Now, why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king is there. Christ is there. And so this becomes the, the focus of um, Christ's ministry, particularly in Matthew. Matthew is someone who picks up this theme of uh, the kingdom. Now, we see this throughout Christ's ministry. He is calling people to remove themselves from the kingdom of this world and to enter into his kingdom. I mean, we see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over again, Christ is talking about the kingdom of heaven is like. He, he speaks about how uh, the kingdom of heaven is entered into by those who keep the Beatitudes. And he's discussing what it means to be a kingdom citizen all throughout uh, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. It's reflected in his public healing ministry. It's interesting, in Mark chapter 2, one of the first miracles that Mark particularly focuses on Notice that there's this healing of this, uh, this uh, lame man. And as the crowds are there, they, they open up the roof. They let this guy down in there. And Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that there are people questioning themselves because Jesus did not say to the lame man, get up and walk. What did he say? Your sins are forgiven you. And he's pointing to the reality that something greater than just physical healing is offered by Christ. And so the, he says this, and then the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the crowds, are like, why is he saying he's forgiving sins? And he says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? What is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And then here's the key. He says, I'm, but this is given so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive 
sins. The great problem of humanity is sin. It is that which separates us from God. It is that which keeps us in the kingdom of this world. And Christ comes and in providing physical healing, he still points back to the spiritual realities of the kingdom that he's bringing. And then we see in Mark chapter 2, I say to you, arise, pick up your bed and go home. And this man rose up immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. What's amazing to note here is that the, the change of this paralytic man so that he can get up and walk is only a fraction of the power that Christ has in bringing forgiveness of sins and bringing hope to those who are lost in the kingdom of this world. We also see Christ's pursuits and the pursuits of others contrasted throughout his ministry. How do the religious leaders react to Christ's coming? I mean, here he is. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do they respond to that? They push back against him. They view him as a threat to their religious and political power. I mean, he called people to completely adhere to him and to cast aside their earthly pursuits and to follow him. I mean, think about the disciples. What were the disciples doing when Christ met them? Fishing. And he says to them, follow me. I'll make you fishers, not of earthly fish, but rather fishers of men. And what do they do? They follow him. But in order to follow him, what must they do? Leave their nets. We see it in Matthew 19. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, this is the rich young ruler. If you're going, he's answering all the questions right. He says to him, if you're going to be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure where? In heaven. And then what you need to do is follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away, what? Sorrowful. Why? He had great possessions. He lived for this worldly kingdom rather than laying that down for the sake of following Christ. Listen, Christ's call for discipleship is one that calls us to lay aside and lay down and to turn away from the kingdom of this world. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for what? The kingdom of God. So this is what Jesus has come preaching. He's come and saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn. Turn from your pursuits of this earthly kingdom and rather turn to me. Find your hope in me. And this all three years, Jesus is preaching the same message. Turn from this worldly kingdom and bow your knee to me, the king of kings and lord of lords. Well, this, this call, some uh, adhere to it, some repent, some sort of get on board, and, and, but yet for fear of men don't publicly proclaim those things. And then we know that many end up turning aside from Christ, particularly the religious leaders. And so 
the, the, particularly the narrative in Matthew sort of drives to this great instance of Christ entering into Jerusalem. What we read in Scripture last week, or this past Sunday, about the triumphal entry. What's going on there? And Holy Week begins with a declaration of the spiritual kingship of Christ. And so what we're going to look at this evening, hopefully, if we get through everything, because that was just the introduction, (laughs) if we get through everything, is we're going to look at both the words and works of Christ that contrast the kingdom, and then we're going to look at his disciples' response, and we're going to contrast two responses um, to this call to leave the kingdom of the earth behind. So Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Again, this is the account of Christ entering into Jerusalem triumphantly. And in Matthew chapter 21, we see, and this this is also particularly important to note, that this is right on the heels of Christ talking with the rich young ruler, of him doing amazing things. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, say to Jerusalem, say to God's people, Behold, your king is coming to you. He's here, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What we find is that there is a sudden public explosion of prophetic fulfillment when Jesus walks into Jerusalem. The crowds seemingly recognize that spiritual kingship. They cry out, you are the son of David. You are the one who has come to rule and to reign. There's a great uproar as he enters into Jerusalem. But notice at the end of this passage, verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Now, what had they just declared? That he was the son of David. They're giving him a messianic title. They're saying he's the king when they say Hosanna in the highest. But notice what the response of the crowds is to those questions. Who is this? And the crowds said, This is prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What we find here is that while they looked for him and had this sort of fervor that happens as he enters into Jerusalem, nonetheless, they are not recognizing who Christ truly is. They don't say he's the king. They don't call him the Christ. They call him a prophet 
They look to him as someone who maybe has some good things to say, maybe has some, some platitudes that we can you know, help us along in our life, but he's not the one to whom we need to give everything to and bow the knee to as king. He's just merely one of many other teachers who provides good morals, but it's not someone that we should give our all to. Remember, there's a great contrast between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, two scenes of crowds. And on Palm Sunday, the crowds are crying out, Hosanna in the highest, this is the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Good Friday, what is their cry? Crucify him. Crucify him. And so what we see is Christ comes declaring himself to be the spiritual king of his people. And what this applies to us and how we should examine this is are we willing to bow the knee completely to who Jesus is? Or do we, like the crowds, want to get on the Jesus bandwagon without recognizing who he truly is without bowing to him as the king of kings and lord of lords but holy week reminds us that there are two kingdoms which kingdom are you going to find yourself in which king do you serve we see secondly that the cleansing of the temple establishes the spiritual nature of communion with God. We see in, this is in Matthew 21, verses 12 and following, and we're not going to, for time's sake, we're not going to read all the different passages here. I'll mention them, and they're up on the screen as well. This is actually the second time that Jesus does this. It happens one other time at the very beginning of his ministry. In John chapter 2, 14 through 17, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And our very calm, loving Christ who never offends anybody, what does he do here? He grabs cords, makes whips, overturns the tables and drives them out physically. He's doing this saying that take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What we find is that Jesus recognizes that our relationship with God, which for Jerusalem was dependent upon the temple, is not a place to seek earthly advancement. What you have going on here with these money changers and these who are selling the pigeons is that they're they're not just sort of doing the best they can for their fellow man. They are profiting off of this. There were exorbitant prices that would be charged for these animals that would be needed for the sacrifices. It was actually exploitation Because these people would have to come and offer sacrifices according to the law for ritual cleansings, for for forgiveness of their sins. I mean, this was all a part of it. And for them to do that, most of them didn't have the means to have all these things, so they'd have to pay. 
speaks about the money changers there. One thing that you have to recognize about Jerusalem is that it was a bit of a melting pot. And there were all sorts of Jewish people coming from other nations. And they would have money that was not accepted as the official temple money. So they'd have to go to the money changers. And the money changers would give them unjust exchange rates. So that the money changers could fill their pockets. And so Jesus sees this going on and he is passionate for his people to commune with God without earthly concerns coming in between them. It's interesting how Jesus says in this passage that it is his house. He's quoting the very words of God, but yet he is speaking them himself. It is Christ's house. It is for his kingdom, not for the advancement of men. And so what this Holy Week event teaches us is that communion with God is spiritual, not physical. It's not about making sure you pay to light a candle or that, you, that you're involved in some sort of physical act, but rather it is a place for you to seek God spiritually. It also is a reminder to us that it is not It is not appropriate. It is sinful to seek earthly advantage by fleecing the flock of God. Thirdly, we see that the parables that Christ gives pointed to the need for spiritual wisdom. As you continue in Matthew chapter um, 20, and actually in the book of Matthew, and particularly once you get... To Matthew 21 and Matthew 22, there's all these parables that Jesus speaks. And now, a lot of us like parables because they're sort of like illustrations. They're stories. And, you know, they, they have these sort of ways of connecting with us in different ways. And I think sometimes we look at parables and we think, oh, these are our favorite parts of what Scripture is given because Jesus is trying to make things more accessible or make them more plain to his people. But that's not why parables were given. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, we see the parables that Jesus is given earlier on in his ministry. He says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Why? He didn't do it to make the things more easy for them to access, but he does it to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And what we find out is that as Jesus goes and gives these parables to the crowds, particularly as he speaks to the religious leaders, they don't get it. And while God's word is being given, it remains hidden. Why? Because they lack the spirit. And so we see actually in, at the end of chapter 21, Jesus says to the religious leaders, have you never read in the scriptures The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces 
And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What we find is that as the, particularly in this particular section, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had challenged the authority of Christ. Who are you to say these things? Jesus gives several parables, and then as he comes to the end of that, he, he brings up this point. I'm speaking in parables to you because you don't get the kingdom. It's been taken from you. To challenge the authority of Christ is to challenge the Spirit himself. And so, Christ indicts their lack of knowledge and tells them the kingdom is taken from them. Again, what were the scribes and Pharisees pursuing? What was their kingdom that they were seeking to build? Not Christ's, their own. They lived for the praise that comes from men. They had authority and power. They had their little kingdom. And Christ's threatened that, and so they railed against him. They sought to undermine him. They questioned his authority. And so Christ, again, is pointing to the fact that if you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven, you must have the Spirit giving you wisdom. Then we see that Christ's comment on taxes highlights the differences between the kingdoms. In Matthew 22, 18 through 20, we 22, we know they come to Jesus and they say, well, is it, um, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And the idea here was, well, obviously we can, trip, we can trip Christ up here because if he says it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he's disobeying Roman rule and we've got him. And if he says that it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the crowds are not going to follow him because nobody wants to pay taxes, Right? It's still like that today. And so what does Jesus bring about? Well, he brings about the fact that there are two kingdoms and we cannot confuse the two. What are we supposed to give Caesar? Give Caesar what is Caesar's. And what are we supposed to give God? Give God what is God's. We can't seek to live halfway in one and halfway in the other. Leave the earthly to the earthly and keep that which is for God for God. We even see that Christ's response about marriages shows the difference between kingdoms. I mean, here the, the, the Pharisees come to him and they ask this question. This is in Matthew 22, 29 through 33. The law required that if a, if a man has a brother whose wife dies, then he's supposed to take that wife to himself as his wife so that he can care for her. And so they come up with this ridiculous um, scenario where there were seven brothers. One brother died. The older brother took the wife. He died. And so down it goes. And so this lady gets all these husbands. And so the question they bring up in, well, when when they get to heaven... Whose wife is he going to be? And Jesus cuts through this because he speaks about how they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. He says this in verse 29. He says they're not given in marriage. This is a different kingdom you're talking about. 
And so as they seek to trip him up, they're completely confusing, seeking to mix together that which should not be mixed together, which Jesus just talked about. And then Jesus comes to them, and finally he goes on the offense in chapter 22. And in verses 41 and following, he shows that the Davidic kingdom speaks of this contrast between kingdoms. It says in verse 41 of Matthew 22, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now again, what had happened just a few days earlier as he came into Jerusalem? Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. And then Jesus then asked them this question. He said, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? And he quotes Psalm 2, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my, hand, my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And I'm sorry, that's not Psalm 2. And then he makes this conclusion, verse 45. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And what we're seeing Jesus doing is he's drawing a conclusion that David's son is also David's Lord. You know what he's saying here? I'm the Messiah. This is probably one of the most explicit statements in Scripture that Jesus makes that he is the Christ. And this points to a spiritual reality, not a physical one. How can David speak of Christ who is there when David lived thousands of years ago? It's impossible for Christ, for the Christ, who is the coming King of Kings, to be merely concerned about earthly matters. His entire kingship is greater than this little patch of land in Jerusalem or in Israel. It is a spiritual, eternal reality. And look at what happens as he brings this up. Verse 46, after this point, his detractors are silenced. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. At this point, Jesus begins to retreat with his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 23, there are a number of woes spoken over the scribes and the Pharisees. And what we find is these point to the dangers of following man's kingdom. Following man's traditions. What's amazing here is the indictment that Jesus places on the scribes and Pharisees. Notice what he says about them in Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor do you allow others who would enter to go in. How? By saying you have to follow our rules, our traditions. Our way of life. The heaping up of their rules and their regulations, their focus on outward conformity, while they themselves harbor inner corruption. 
The kingdom is not a matter of physical actions and deeds. It is a matter of a spiritual reality born within a person. And when we focus on the external to the exclusion of the internal, we slam the door of the kingdom in the face of people. It's not the result of outward effort or exertion. And then we come to Matthew 24 through 25, what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And this has been a, a passage of Scripture that theologians and interpreters have been debating and discussing for years, for, for years, for millennia. And Jesus is prophesying here. And you know what he, the main point we can take away from it all? Christ's kingdom prevails. There's ultimate victory in his kingdom. There's nothing that will stop his kingdom. He details how the political and religious hierarchy will be toppled by his kingdom. It's going to be violent. It's going to be a pouring out of God's wrath. It is inevitable and irresistible, and it is also personal. The end of the Olivet Discourse. Notice what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. Right? One King. One throne. Other nations are subject to the King of Kings. And he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit what? The kingdom prepared for you. And notice, how long, has this, how long ago was this kingdom prepared? From the foundation of the world. What a, what a glorious hope that those that are in Christ inherit a kingdom, not of this world, that when this world is gone, Christ will take his people and gather them to himself and then he will give them the kingdom that he has called them to follow and be in. So, it's amazing to me to see how all of these events in the Holy Week point to this reality. And I imagine you probably would agree with everything that was said here. There's nothing new that we see here. But what we find in Matthew's narrative is a great contrast between two of Christ's disciples. We see how his disciples, one of them responds appropriately to the fact that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And one of them responds sadly, tragically, seeking the kingdom of this world. We see, first of all, the extravagant sacrifice of Mary. Look at verse 6 of Matthew chapter 26. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. 
and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, we read that, and we think, oh, she poured some perfume over him. I I want you to, to notice what he says. Very expensive ointment. Pours it on his head. Well, just keep those things in mind, because it's going to show something amazing. And it's also going to explain the response of the disciples, particularly one disciple in verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What's going on here? Well, we know from the other accounts of this event that this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. She takes this ointment, which is extremely expensive. It's put in an alabaster flask, and that alabaster flask refers to something that would have been of great value. John tells us that she doesn't just take the lid off of the flask and pour it on him, but she actually breaks the flask itself. So, so, and what, what maybe was the case is that this was put into this alabaster flask and then sealed because of how valuable it was. And to use it, you'd have to break it. Again, Matthew speaks of it as being very expensive. The value of what she gives here is immense. It is likely her life savings, maybe even what had been left for her as a dowry. It's estimated in today's money that the value of it would be something north of $50,000. You say, how can perfume cost that much? Have you been cologne shopping lately? She takes it and she gives it all to Jesus. Now, think about this for a second. I think the response that... Matthew says is the disciples. Elsewhere we know that it's Judas that's speaking about this. I think we probably would maybe have the same response. What? Do you know how much money that's worth? How can someone take their life savings and just waste it all in one shot? But it wasn't wasted. It was a beautiful thing that she did for Christ. And what this shows is that Mary's heart is one that values Christ more than the most valuable thing she has on earth. She turned away from the kingdom of this world. She valued Christ as worthy of it. Again, there's two things to note about the effect of such an extravagant gift. First, it, was un, it would be undeniable, because notice it says that the fragrance filled the room. We see that in John, actually. It would have been, as you walked into that place, this ointment would be so strong that it would be undeniable 
that she had done this. And secondly, it revealed that earthly kingdom-mindedness of, of Christ's disciples as they objected to this extravagant gift. Who is this one who has objected? Well, we know from other gospel narratives it is Judas. And it's interesting that in Matthew's narrative, guess what the next story is about? Judas. In fact, Matthew is doing this, I think, purposely here. It says in verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany, what Matthew is doing in his narrative is he's flashing back to something that happened before the triumphal entry. And, and if you look at the other gospel narratives, you find that this event is recorded after Jesus enter, or, I'm sorry, just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So Matthew is taking and using um, a, a little bit of editorial license to make a point. And so just a quick little aside, when you find differences between the gospel narratives, it's not saying that Matthew was wrong and John was right or whatever, but rather it's just saying there, he's making a point here. And so he's flashing back and he says, look, look at what Mary did for Christ. And then he says, let's contrast that with another disciple of Christ. Judas. Look at verses 14 through 16. Thankfully, Matthew is short on this story. I think he wants the glory of Christ to be seen through Mary's offering. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Sigariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me? If I deliver him over to you. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. With Mary we see absolutely beautiful consideration of the value of Christ. With Judas we see that Christ is not even worth a few hundred dollars in today's money. John MacArthur, in his excellent book, I would recommend if you don't have a copy of this book, get it and, and seek to read it every year during Holy Week. His book, The Murder of Jesus, he says this about Judas's betrayal of Christ. It may well be that Christ's rebuke on that occasion sealed what had been growing as a disillusionment in Judas's mind. He may have been questioning the Messianic credentials of Jesus. After all, he, like everyone else, expected a Messiah who would deliver Israel from Roman oppression and establish his throne. He's looking for the wrong type of kingdom. Judas, as well as the other disciples, no doubt had hoped to share in the glory and power of his kingdom. In fact, in Matthew 20, we see that. But as Jesus talked more and more about his rejection and impending death, Judas lost enthusiasm for following him. He had hung on for three years, hoping Jesus would take the throne of David and elevate Judas. His motives all along appeared to have been greed and a selfish thirst for power. Combine that with the fact that he was pilfering from the disciples' treasury, which he was responsible for. He watched with resentment his costly gifts, a pound of pure spikenard and an alabaster flask, were sacrificed in an act of sheer worship. 
And as Judas saw the potential profits of a planned embezzlement evaporate, he may have decided that there must be a way to make up for this loss by selling Jesus. And thus it may have been at this very moment that he made his final decision to commit an act of treachery by handing Jesus over to his enemies, valuing him for just a few days' worth of wages. Now, there's a lot more that we could go on, and I know I'm over time. Surprise, surprise. There's a lot more that happens in Holy Week. What we could talk about is the interactions of Christ with Peter, the chief priest, Pilate, Herod, the woman weeping for him, even the thieves on the cross. All of this, Jesus is pointing to the difference between the true kingdom, or his kingdom, the true kingdom, and the kingdom of this world. So what do we take from all of this? And particularly as we come up on other holy weeks, how can we reflect on them? Well, first we have to recognize that Christ calls us to seek first his kingdom. What does that look like? Well, we publicly recognize and proclaim him as king. As he walked into Jerusalem, as Mary does this great proclamation, she shows that he is the king. We place a priority on communion with God, not on the things of this earth. The things of this earth are not worth missing an opportunity to know our God more. We recognize that we have to be dependent upon the Spirit to understand the things of God. And then, and this I think is the biggest way, we have to be willing to extravagantly sacrifice For Christ's sake. Being willing to let go of all that we have in this world for him. What does it look like to seek the kingdom of this world? We minimize Christ's authority. He's just a prophet. He's just a good teacher. He sort of helps me and have a good moral outlook on life. But that's it. We exploit True religion for our own purposes. Maybe it's to make us feel better. Maybe it's to look good in other people's uh, eyes. Maybe it's to get something. We look at our lives in this world and we depend on our traditions. Not the truth of God's word, but our traditions. And then we live this life because we want and seek earthly advancement. And so Holy Week gives us an opportunity to see the contrast between these two kingdoms. Which kingdom are you living for? Are you seeking to live under the rule and reign of the King of Kings? Or are you willing to sell Jesus for a few hundred dollars? May we, by God's grace, seek His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. Father, may we take these truths and and think upon them. There's a lot that we covered here this evening. May we meditate on who you are as King, King of kings and Lord of lords. And may we live every moment turning from the kingdom of this world and seeking to know you and your kingdom more. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, Have a great day.